Welcome to the October 28th edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, and I'm joined by Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Patrick. Good, Good to see Rick. you, Pat. Good to see you all, and uh, uh, welcome back after uh, uh, our debate watch party. I know uh, we had a lot of folks who uh, got involved in that, and uh, Ambassador Bowers, you were uh, you were a bingo winner. You had uh, <laughs> uh, enough to qualify for a prize, so congratulations on that. Well, thank you very much. I think it was a, a lively program. We thank uh, David Plazas of the Tennessean and uh, the Civility Tennessee Project that he heads for moderating the uh, the pre and post uh, debate um, panelists. We had a, a terrific panel, and that, among other things, is in our youtube.com slash TNWAC archives. And we're gonna talk more about uh, that archive today. But let's get, uh, we're gonna cover the earth today um, in our uh, review of the election 2020 series. Uh, but let's uh, start with our quiz question. And uh, as soon as we uh, tee this up for uh, Breck, we will uh, we'll get underway. I think you've got, uh, that in front of you. Breck, if you want to uh, start with that, go ahead. You bet. Thanks. Thanks, Pat. Well, as we have for the last couple, three weeks, we've added a question to our uh, What in the World quiz from the U.S. Institute of uh, Peace uh, report. And Tinwax enjoyed a close relationship with the USIP, and we're, we're very pleased to highlight these uh, insightful, interesting reports on their website. So each week, uh, question number five in the weekly quiz will be our USIP question of the week. And this, this week, the question is this. Kurdish authorities operate two dozen detention facilities in Northeast Syria, holding thousands of these former fighters. Authorities announced earlier this month they plan to release 24,000 from the Al-Hal camp because conditions there have become unsustainable. And, uh, uh, so the answers, the possible answers are A, Al-Qaeda, B, ISIS, C, Al-Quds, or D, Al-Nusra. And we'll have the answer at the end of the program. Thanks, Pat. Terrific. And we're going to uh, take just a, a quick moment to uh, talk about uh, membership in the World Affairs Council. Uh, this is, uh, we're wrapping up membership month, and I wanted to make sure that uh, Everybody had the uh, opportunity to uh, consider becoming a member of the World Affairs Council. That's how we uh, uh, sustain our operations and the programs that we bring to you. Uh, you can see on your screen some of the basic uh, benefits of membership. And if you go to tnwac.org slash join, uh, you'll see all these uh, explained and uh, the different membership levels. I'll mention two of the benefits, uh, the Daily Chatter newsletter, which is a, uh, a, a customized newsletter that comes to your inbox if you're a member every uh, weekday. And there's the world famous Tennessee World Affairs Council coffee mug that'll be coming your way with the membership of the basic individual membership or higher. Uh, that's a $60 level and, uh, and higher. So we look forward to uh, you considering becoming a member. And uh, now we will jump into our program. Uh, Ambassador Bowers, if you wanna just uh, give us a brief explanation of what's, uh, what's on tap today, we will uh, get right into it. Okay, thanks. Um, we're gonna be discussing the topics presented in the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Election 2020 program. 
we hope that you were able to see some of these panels of distinguished speakers over the past several months. These are available and you can catch up by going to youtube.com slash TNWAC and the video archives. So these particular projects were all outstanding programs. Um, Pat, are you going to read them all or just let everybody? Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let their eyes wander across that screen there. And then we're going to go into uh, some of these and uh, drill down a little bit, uh, talk about uh, uh, these topics uh, in particular. And, and I think uh, uh, I'll also mention, and, and you mentioned that these are available on uh, the, the uh, archives. And right. again, that's um, uh, youtube.com slash TNWAC. And you can see uh, here an example of what uh, the YouTube site looks like on the left. And we've got uh, quite a collection of uh, not just the election 2020 broadcast, but all the programs we do, including the uh, world famous Global News Review with Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Breck Walker and myself. Uh, those are all archived as well as our programs uh, with uh, Mayor Carl Dean, Global Nashville with Carl Dean, and he talks to community leaders. So check out uh, youtube.com slash TNWAC uh, for the videos, and uh, those are available for you to review at your leisure. And Pat, uh, the there's one, one thing on your list that won't be there because it hasn't taken place yet, and that's the America's Place in the World 2. That's right. right? So American Place in the World 1 has taken place and you can watch the video, but 2 will be taking place on Thursday evening or Thursday at 5.30, I believe, right? Yep, tomorrow uh, tomorrow at 5.30 uh, will be the second part of America's uh, Place in the World. Dickering and Kornblum, two giants of the US Foreign Service. Right, Ambassador uh, Thomas Pickering and Ambassador John Kornblum uh, will be uh, talking with our moderator, Professor Thomas Schwartz, uh, from uh, Vanderbilt's Department of History. Um, and I, I think that's gonna be a, a really terrific program to get an understanding of uh, and perspective on, on America's challenges in foreign policy and, and what's going on in the world as we look at uh, either the second uh, term of President Trump or a new administration of Vice President Biden. Uh, let me finish with this slide, Dick. On the uh, right-hand side of, of this, you can see our podcast page. And that's just the top of it. We, uh, as, as we mentioned last week, we've gone over a hundred podcasts and 40 of them originally were uh, strictly audio podcasts, but then all of our webinars since we started in March when the pandemic uh, blew into town um, have been saved as both podcasts and webinars. So if you're a podcast person, uh, check out soundcloud.com slash TNWAC or wherever you get your podcasts, just look for the Global Tennessee series of podcasts and you can uh, get all those uh, for your listening pleasure. Uh, Dick, let's, uh, and, and Breck, let's jump into uh, the, the first topic on that list um, that we talked about. And it was way back in August, we, uh, we were uh, privileged to have former Defense Secretary William Perry uh, with us, along with uh, Tom Kalina uh, from the Plowshares, uh, the director of uh, uh, production at, uh, at Plowshares, which is uh, probably the world's foremost nuclear nonproliferation um, organization, and Lisa Perry. And uh, she heads uh, a podcast connected 
with uh, uh, Secretary Perry and his uh, participation in the book, The Button, which uh, the full title is The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Trump to Truman. And um, I, I think um, uh, you fellas were uh, listening in on that. And, and uh, the big takeaway of what they were talking about was the, uh, the sole, well, actually a couple of things. Um, they're, they're both concerned about proliferation of nuclear weapons. And we talked about the New START Treaty with the Russian Federation, which is due to expire in February. But the, the thrust of their book was the, the fact that uh, we have one individual in the United States, the commander in chief, who's the sole nuclear release authority. And they, uh, uh, they like many Americans are concerned that uh, that power to uh, without question uh, release uh, weapons from our country's nuclear arsenal is, uh, is dangerous and needs to be uh, reviewed and, and modified. Um, secretary Perry uh, related a story when he was the defense secretary, he got a call at three o'clock in the morning from uh, the North American Air Defense Command uh, that uh, a, a major attack of Russian ICBMs uh, was underway. And uh, he had uh, minutes to uh, get involved in the National Command Authority relating that information to the president and possibly unleashing World War III. As it turns out, there was a, uh, a malfunction in a chip in a computer that, uh, that gave them that indication. And in fact, it was a false indication. So he talked about a couple of cases uh, in history where the United States was moments uh, away and, and simply the decision uh, of people at the top, uh, whether we were at war or not. And that was back in, uh, in the Cold War when uh, you know, people were, were more concerned, but uh, still the United States and the Russian Federation um, have uh, over a thousand uh, strategic weapons pointed at one another. So this is uh, a concern of the, uh, uh, the Nuclear Release Authority. They uh, especially focused on the question of one individual, uh, the President of the United States having sole authority, and they, uh, they proposed uh, some uh, measures to, to change that, uh, that danger. Um, they, they related the story of Richard Nixon during Watergate when he was uh, thought to be intoxicated during most of the uh, final days. And uh, uh, Defense Secretary Schlesinger gave an order to the aides who were uh, with Nixon that if he said, uh, if he gave any direction about uh, nuclear weapons release that they should call him immediately. And, and that order was really uh, illegal uh, because the procedure is that if the president orders a launch, that's, that's it. Um, but he, uh, he took the risk of intervening and, and prevented Nixon if he had chosen to, uh, to do something untoward like that uh, from doing so. Uh, so the conversation uh, mostly focused on uh, the, the release authority of, of the president and uh, the fact that uh, we, uh, we don't necessarily need to launch, uh, launch on warning, which is the process where if we detect uh, a launch from uh, say the Russian Federation or some other a country with a, a ballistic missile that we respond before the weapons hit. Uh, <clears throat> they, they argued that uh, our nuclear deterrent was survivable enough, uh, for example, the submarines, that we didn't uh, need to have that. So I, I would suggest that uh, people interested in 
this existential threat to the United States and the world, uh, take a listen to, uh, to that program. Again, it's in our youtube.com uh, slash TNWAC archives uh, as are all of these programs. Can I just um, jump in, Pat, with something that seems to be under the radar? Yes, sir. That there's a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons where countries sign up and say, we will not make them and we won't have them on our soil. We won't have anything to do with them. And I understand that the, the 50 signatures have been reached and ratified and that treaty is now going into effect and the nuclear having powers like the United States and China and Russia and the UK and France and Israel, these, we are all saying this is a bad idea. And uh, this is something we're gonna look at in the future, I think, because it's, yep. it's just kind of slid in under the radar of the US elections there, but uh, it's, gonna, it's an important thing that's happened. Well, there's, there's a lot of things happening in the world of nuclear uh, proliferation. We're going to talk about Iran and North Korea in, in the session today. Um, but uh, yeah. yes, sir. Well, I just wanted to mention, too, just a little history. But back in the Reagan administration, uh, the U.S. was uh, engaging in a war preparation exercise. And I believe that they informed the Russians they were doing so. I think that exercise was called Able Archer. But uh, in fact, as the exercise got underway, the Russians thought perhaps this was a ruse uh, by the United States and that, attack really, and that an attack was really going to happen. And so they started uh, going to higher levels of alert and began mustering some of their forces. And later on, when Reagan talked to Gorbachev, uh, uh, Reagan was, I guess, surprised that the Russians thought that, that we might take advantage of that situation and actually attack them first. And uh, there's several historians that have written that that incident had a big influence in Reagan turning hard towards an arms control orientation in his second term. Yeah, there's the, the history of uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation, arms control. It's really fascinating. And a lot of people just, it's in the background, uh, sort of like pandemics uh, were a year ago. And you never know when there's going to be um, the appearance of, of uh, a threat that we uh, minimize is not likely, but uh, there's a whole category of uh, unlikely, but uh, highly uh, uh, intense and uh, damaging things that, that can happen in the world. And nuclear proliferation is, is in that category. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on, uh, fellas, to uh, the Middle East. We had two panels on the Middle East. <clears throat> the first was with uh, David Rundell, an American diplomat, who was talking about his book on Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads, uh, a fascinating book. And David is uh, probably the diplomat in the US Foreign Service. He's retired now, but he was known to be the guy who had spent more time in uh, Saudi Arabia than uh, any other diplomat. He, uh, he was there through many postings and his book is being hailed as really an authoritative uh, uh, Bible on uh, how to understand what's going on in Saudi Arabia. And then we had a, a separate panel uh, on the overall Middle East uh, with Rami Hori, uh, a journalist from uh, Beirut. He's also a uh, scholar at the American University of Beirut, currently in uh, Cambridge, uh, spending time at uh, Harvard, <clears throat> excuse me, as a visiting professor. Uh, Dr. Paul Pilar is a career CIA uh, officer. Uh, he was involved in the national level activities as an intelligence officer. He was also head of the counterterrorism center and uh, we had uh, Mona Yakubian, who is an authority on the Middle East, especially Syria, 
with the U.S. Institute of Peace. So uh, among these uh, four individuals who have decades of experience in the Middle East, we really had a great oversight of, uh, of what's going on in the region. And just uh, uh, we three can take a, a, a tour of uh, the Middle East and, and talk about some of these things for just a couple of minutes. Um, people don't, don't necessarily consider Libya in the Middle East, but uh, the, the State Department, the way it's organized, uh, they, they call themselves the Bureau of Near East and um, African Affairs, um, MENA. So Libya, Egypt, uh, that, that extension uh, from the middle of the Arabian Peninsula uh, has really seen a lot of uh, uh, interesting activity. There's still a civil war going on in Libya and it's uh, involved a number of external powers, including um, uh, some of the European actors, uh, Turkey, Russia, uh, there are uh, Syrian um, uh, militias or uh, soldiers who have been uh, uh, conscripted to go to Libya. Uh, the Egyptians are involved. The United Arab Emirates is involved. Uh, so it's really become an internationalized uh, conflict. Uh, there continue to be uh, efforts to bring a peace treaty about between the forces in, uh, based in Benghazi in, in the east and uh, the capital Tripoli in, in the west. And the, the UN has recognized uh, the government uh, in, in Tripoli as the authoritative uh, government for uh, the whole of the country, but there's still the, the fighting going on. Um, moving to the Eastern Mediterranean, though, in our global news review of the past couple of weeks, we've talked about a uh, potential confrontation between Turkey, uh, who is exploring the Eastern Mediterranean for gas and oil reserves, undersea uh, oil reserves, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, the conflict uh, that could arise uh, between Turkey and Greece um, over those, uh, those areas. Greece is involved in the, uh, the splitting of Cyprus between North and South as a result of the 1974 uh, war on Cyprus. The Turks control the Northern part and um, the Greek Cypriots uh, control the South. So the area of the Eastern Mediterranean that's being explored by Turkey uh, crosses uh, some contentious uh, lines uh, that, uh, that Greece claims. So we need to be on the lookout for potential for conflict between Greece and Turkey, two NATO allies in that area. Uh, the Levant or the area of the Middle East uh, bordering on the Eastern Mediterranean, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, Israel, as, as we've uh, discussed, has uh, normalized relations with Qatar, uh, Bahrain, and most recently Sudan, another Arab nation. Uh, so there's been some progress in, uh, in, in reducing tensions in the area, but uh, the Palestinians haven't signed on to any of that. So we still have a, a stalemate between Israel and Palestine over the, uh, uh, the West Bank, uh, Gaza, and so forth. Lebanon, um, we've discussed the, uh, the political economic situation there. Uh, they're in dire straits. The economy is really troubled. Uh, we know that uh, they had an explosion in the port area about a month or so ago that uh, damaged a considerable part of the port, uh, killed and wounded uh, many uh, Lebanese and uh, damaged a lot of the, uh, the downtown area. Uh, so Lebanon continues to struggle with their economy, their politics, uh, demonstrations. Uh, there's a, a caretaker government in place 
So we'll uh, we'll see what happens there. And Lebanon is is really uh, sort of in the, the crossroads between the battles between Hezbollah and Israel and uh, the connection with Syria and, uh, and Lebanon. Syria continues to, uh, to be plagued with uh, the remnants of the civil war uh, battles going on in the, the north, uh, the potential for resurgence of ISIS, um, which formed its caliphate based in Syria, uh, which had been beaten back, but uh, those forces are still uh, in the area. And um, you know, as as we uh, as Breck noted in the question of the week, 24,000 uh, people from a detention facility in uh, northern Syria are about to really be released, and those are former uh, fighters that uh, could be uh, re-entered into the battle there. Uh, Iraq uh, is uh, another uh, troubled country. Uh, divisions there persist. Uh, there's uh, uh, been trouble forming a government that uh, could control what's happening throughout the, uh, the country. Uh, a major problem is with the militias uh, that were formed and many of them backed by Iran. Um, and they have been uh, attacking and harassing US forces that are still in Iraq, uh, US forces that were in Iraq to fight ISIS. Uh, the United States uh, is looking at reducing that presence uh, so we will have to uh, be uh, mindful of what's happening in Iraq vis-a-vis uh, -vis U.S. relations. About a month ago, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, threatened the Iraqi government that uh, the United States Embassy in Baghdad would close if the Iraqi government didn't do more uh, to quell the, uh, the violence from the militias. Um, let's move on to the, uh, the Persian Gulf, a never-ending source of uh, interesting things going on. And, and you can see the, uh, the map on the right uh, shows uh, Iran to the east in the Persian Gulf, um, and then the going uh, counterclockwise, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, uh, this uh, small uh, island here in the Gulf, Qatar, the thumb that sticks off the side of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and uh, Oman, part of which is in the Persian Gulf, and then uh, the rest of it is uh, down along the southern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. So uh, what's going on in the Persian Gulf? Uh, Iran is uh, uh, at the end of, uh, at the receiving end of the US maximum pressure campaign. Uh, they've uh, mounted what's uh, been called maximum resistance. Uh, they're not buckling to the demands uh, that uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, announced after the US withdrew from the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is known as the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, that deal uh, between uh, among the United States and the rest of the P5 plus one powers, the permanent five members of the UN Security Council uh, plus Germany and the European Union, uh, that deal was uh, to hold Iranian nuclear developments in check uh, to prevent them from acquiring fissile material with which to build a nuclear weapon. Uh, the US pulled out and uh, the other powers uh, are trying to keep the deal in place. However, Iran uh, last uh, year announced that they were going to uh, continue producing fissile material beyond the limits of the JCPOA since the United States had pulled out of the deal. And in the news today, uh, uh, Breck and Dick, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a report that construction in Iran 
has begun mm. on a new uh, centrifuge production facility underground. So Iran is pushing the limits of the JCPOA um, and basically uh, telling the United States, if, if you don't want to be in it, uh, we are going to uh, uh, not comply fully with uh, the conditions of, of the agreement. So that, that's something to be uh, watching what happens uh, with the nuclear portfolio vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. And, um, you know, before we had the JCPOA, there were intermittent threats that the United States and possibly others uh, would use military force to destroy some of these facilities. And, uh, you know, now we're, we're in the uncomfortable position where we no longer have the, uh, uh, the nuclear deal, but we have to uh, determine what, uh, what the course is uh, with Iran and its nuclear program. Uh, Saudi Arabia uh, across the Gulf is aligned uh, with uh, the Gulf states in opposing Iranian expansion and uh, activities throughout the region. Uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, predominantly Sunni. Iran is predominantly Shia in the uh, Muslim faith. Um, so there's, uh, there's both uh, a religious, uh, religious differences uh, uh, as well as cultural differences. Saudis are, are Arabs, Iranians are Persians. And then there's the uh, contention over uh, expansion and exporting the revolution from Iran. So uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran are, are uh, at loggerheads over uh, a number of issues. And uh, on the side of Saudi Arabia are the GCC or Gulf Cooperation Council members, which includes Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, and the UAE and Oman. Uh, there is uh, a contentious issue that arose about two years ago between Qatar and uh, especially Bahrain, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Uh, there's been an embargo and uh, a cessation of uh, normal uh, political relations um, between Qatar and the others. Uh, so that's, uh, that's an issue. It's uh, exacerbated for U.S. foreign policy, and it's an issue for us in that uh, Qatar is the home of the Al-Udid uh, Air Base, which is a major U.S. Uh, air facility and uh, the, the base for the U.S. Central Command, uh, our, uh, our staff that controls U.S. military operations in the region. Uh, so having a, a contentious relationship um, between Qatar and the others when the United States is trying to get uh, everyone, all of our Gulf partners, uh, to play together is, uh, is a difficult issue. Let's see, what else is going on in uh, that part of the world? Uh, Dick, uh, anything, any of your observations on the Middle East that uh, you'd like to share? Um, I'll just throw out one observation, how little in our internal campaigning between Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump is mentioned foreign policy. So, I mean, America is really focused on our naval and it's uh, you know, not, I think, a good thing in the long run. We've got serious issues out there and we need to be tending to our allies and our alliances. And I don't think we're doing a very good job of that. Yeah. Okay, uh, a, a interesting place. And uh, let, let me pause uh, at, at this point to uh, remind uh, our folks who are with us today uh, we would enjoy having your questions, and um, I would think that uh, covering the whole world, uh, Brett, that people would be able to 
come up come up with a question or two. So I, I, cha I challenge our audience, uh, our attendees today, uh, to put a question in the chat box, and we'll uh, we'll look forward to taking that on. You got uh, uh, at least uh, two two folks here, uh, uh, Breck and Dick, who uh, who know the world like the the back of their hands, and would be happy to answer any questions. So uh, please uh, throw some questions in the chat box. And with that, we're going to uh, turn to uh, our friend uh, Dr. Breck Walker to talk about a uh, panel that he headed up um, on Russia, North Korea, and Afghanistan. Breck, over to you. Thanks, Pat. Um, I moderated a panel back on September 17th uh, dealing with uh, hotspots. Uh, again, issues that we felt uh, should be issues to consider uh, when you're deciding who to vote for in the presidential election. And on that panel, we had two career foreign service officers and a well-known uh, scholar from George Washington University uh, on, uh, that specializes in Russian-American relations. But before I get into some of the quick specifics of what they had to say, I wanted to comment, if I might, on the remarkable symmetry to their perspectives on the importance of good old-fashioned diplomacy for U.S. interests in the world going forward. And I, uh, given his experience as a career foreign service officer and former ambassador, I was going to ask Ambassador Bowers, after I go through, th go through these three points, to comment on this and uh, see whether he agrees with them or not. But in my mind, the first point of agreement among my panelists is this, that uh, diplomacy is a uh, vital activity and that the U.S. as leader of the free world needs to be very, very good at it if we're to influence the world in ways that produce peace and prosperity for most. Now, the famous uh, Chinese leader in the 60s and 70s, right-hand man to Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, once famously said, all diplomacy is a continuation of war by other means. And I think my panelists would strongly disagree with that. I think they'd say that conflict is usually the result of a failed diplomatic effort, and conflict is often unintended and the result of miscommunication or poor diplomacy. The second point of agreement that I think we had on my panel was that diplomacy is the long game. Uh, to diplomats, talk is not cheap. Talk is often the whole ballgame. That engagement in and of itself should be a key foreign policy strategy that communication between adversaries helps to keep the peace, even if all it is is communication. And sometimes, if you're lucky, you might get uh, an agreement out of it. And I found this quote from uh, Mr. Talleyrand, who was an 18th century French foreign minister. And he said, quote, a diplomat who says yes means maybe, a diplomat who says maybe means no, and a diplomat who says no, well, he's no diplomat. And I think my panel agree with that, that uh, diplomacy is a lot about keeping the conversation going, and that in and of itself is a very useful accomplishment, given what the alternatives might be. And then the third and final point coming out of my panel on this topic is this. Although it may sound a little partisan, there was uh, agreement among my panelists, and that was presidents matter greatly when it comes to American foreign policy. And all three were critical of the Trump administration's approach, saying uh, that it was uncoordinated, that it lacked an underlying strategy in most instances, that it was subject to sudden shifts based on the president's impulse in the moment, that it tended to has tended to weaken our historical alliances and has tended to embolden autocratic leaders who do not share 
uh, our values towards democracy and uh, human rights. So uh, just, Dick, if, if you don't, do you have any comments on that with your long experience in the State Department? Well, I, uh, I'll, I'll, Dick, I'll let you get, uh, think about that another second. I'll, I'll just comment that uh, you've, you've been ambushed by the PhD on the panel here with Talleyrand. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The answer is I agree with all three of those points and including Mr. Talleyrand. We, I used to use a, an expression that, you know, what is a diplomat? A, 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 t a diplomat is someone who never gives offense inadvertently. So that means you can tell the other guy is an SOB, but you have to be sure you really want to do that. You know, um, I'm, I view this whole thing with diplomacy as, as diplomacy is our first line of defense. And it's when the diplomats can't resolve the problems by discussion and sitting down together and trying to work out compromise, then you have your military, which you turn to. But we have really not uh, pushed ahead with the diplomats as the first line of defense under the Trump administration. There is no coherent foreign policy in the United States as far as I'm concerned right now. Well, I wish you'd been on. Wish you'd been on my panel, Dick. You you would have uh, had uh, a lot of colleagues agreeing with you on that. <laughs> well, I, there's a, a a lot of people agree. And in fact, part of the problem is that so many foreign service officers agreed that it's chaos with the Trump administration. Then a lot of them have bailed out, and the State Department is gutted out, and it's a hollow place these days. And part of the problem is the State Department is just is kind of like the military. If you want to have the Tom Pickerings and the John Cornblooms uh, down the road 30 years from now, you have to hire junior officers. You've got to bring the lieutenants in so you can have generals, right? And we have not been doing that for the last three or four years, and uh, we're in bad shape. So a new Biden administration should demand win. I think one of the first things on his list of things to do is to reinvigorate diplomacy. Hey, Breck, if I could just make a point, um, I think uh, your panel uh, exemplified this uh, election 2020 series. We were blessed to bring in uh, some talented people to talk about these issues. And, and you had uh, Annie Sforzheimer, who had been the uh, deputy chief of mission in Kabul, Afghanistan, and the deputy assistant secretary of state with the portfolio for Afghanistan. Ambassador Christopher Hill, uh, another legendary diplomat, who was ambassador to several countries, including South Korea. And he was the uh, undersecretary, uh, Dick, is it undersecretary for uh, East Asia or? Assistant secretary. Assistant secretary, excuse me, for um, the uh, East Asia uh, portfolio. And Dr. Svetlana Saravinskaya, uh, a scholar on Russia. Um, and this is, this is typical of the, uh, the quality uh, of the panelists that we brought in. So I, I really recommend to people to take a look at some of these election 2020 programs. Uh, you really will uh, have some insights and perspectives on these issues that uh, you couldn't get uh, anywhere else. So we're, we're extremely pleased to be able to, to bring those folks to you and in perpetuity in our youtube.com slash TNWAC archive. Anything you want to get into specific to Russia, North Korea, and Afghanistan, uh, Breck? I'm happy to, uh, if you'd like, I'm happy to pass too, but I'm happy to reduce 90 minutes of good conversation down to four to five minutes of highlights, if you'd like. Well, what, was your, what was your major takeaway? And, uh, you know, these are all uh, challenges to 
the U.S. You know, we're we're fighting a war in Afghanistan. Uh, we could be at war in North Korea in ten minutes, and uh, Russia is uh, uh, acting belligerently uh, around the world. And the U.S. is, uh, you know, we've had face-offs with Russian troops in Syria. Uh, there's the threat in the, the Baltics and and uh, Ukraine. Um, so you know, these are these are adversarial relationships where troops are uh, are deployed, and and we have. U.S. interests are clearly, uh, clearly defined. Um, what, what were your major takeaways? Well, starting with Afghanistan and extremely briefly, I thought that uh, Ms. Forsheimer, uh, who has been in Afghanistan, as, as, uh, as Pat mentioned, is the number two person in our embassy there for uh, over two years. Uh, and we've talked about this in a prior global news report. I mean, America's getting very, the American public is getting very tired of the war. And under Presidents Obama and President Trump, we have uh, withdrawn most of our troops. And uh, we are with the Afghan government in negotiations with the Taliban right now to see if there can be some sort of agreement that would end hostilities and that would also reintegrate the Taliban into Afghan society while preserving the accomplishments that that to the Afghan people, with some help from us, uh, have achieved over these last 20 years, almost 20 years. And uh, I think Annie's major points were that there are serious accomplishments that are underappreciated in terms of prosperity and health and rights for women and, uh, uh, and a more open, uh, free society than was the case when we first went in there. But the diplomatic task that we face at this point is formidable because the Taliban thinks that they're in a position to win, that in all likelihood the U.S. is going to bug out and they can reassert themselves. Uh, uh, and, uh, and the Afghan government itself is one that today is divided and by all accounts extremely corrupt. And if there is a diplomatic solution there that we would push, it's going to be uh, a very long process. And uh, she's very hopeful, I would say, maybe not optimistic, but hopeful that the American public will uh, and, and whatever administration comes into power after this election, we'll try and live up to the commitments we made to the Afghan people when we went into Afghanistan uh, 20 years ago. And then I guess uh, if it's okay, quickly moving on to uh, North Korea and, and Christopher Hill. Uh, uh, the, the points that I, Christopher Hill uh, has been very involved in uh, the negotiations through the years with North Korea uh, over its uh, nuclear capability. He was the lead negotiator in the six-party talks that started under the uh, George W. Bush administration. Uh, and uh, uh, I think he would make the following points, or I think he did make the following points, that Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, his reason for wanting nuclear weapons is to try and fracture the alliance between the U.S. and South Korea and once fractured, if the U.S. pulls its troops out, then Kim would look for opportunities to move militarily, uh, in Christopher Hill's opinion, to reunify the peninsula uh, under his rule. And uh, Ambassador Hill points out that President Trump has mused on more than one occasion about removing U.S. troops in order to save some money and also in order to eliminate a source of tension on the peninsula, peninsula, and Ambassador Hill thought uh, that that was playing right into uh, uh, to Kim's hands. Um, Hill went on to say that he thought it was very important that the U.S. never give up 
on trying to find a diplomatic way to make North Korea relinquish, give up its nuclear ambitions. That, that would, that's important for peace in the region, it's important for our influence in the region, and it's important for our alliances, especially those with South Korea uh, and Japan. And the last point he said is the key to making progress in North Korea in his mind is China using its influence and leverage. The Chinese absolutely need to be a part of any future negotiations, he argued. And he lamented that under the Trump administration, the relationship with China has become worse. Uh, and there's, I'm sure there's fault on both sides, but one result has been that China and North Korea have been drawing closer together. And that undoubtedly pushes any progress on the nuclear issue farther uh, to the future. And then on Russia, uh, Dr. Savinskaya, she's director of Russian programs at the National Security Archive at uh, George Washington University. And very summarily, she said that America, Russian American relations today are worse than they've been at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which is a dangerous situation that both countries are in the midst of major nuclear modernization programs. We're not talking to one another right now and uh, a miscommunication could lead to a, uh, to a dangerous situation uh, in her mind. She says that she believes that mistakes has, have been made on both sides since the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991 that have caused Russian-American relations to decline to the point uh, that they are today in uh, Crimea and Ukraine on the Russian side and on the U.S. side, perhaps withdrawing from arms control treaties, expanding NATO to former Soviet republics. There's been, from each perspective, there's been provocations uh, on both sides and the result has been rising tension and much less communication uh, back and forth. And her points uh, relative to American diplomacy going forward uh, were these, that Russia's a weak nation today. Unlike in the Cold War, Russia's a weak nation today economically and militarily, except for its nuclear weapons. And it's not at all the strategic threat uh, that China is to U.S. interests looking out 10 or 20 years. She argued that Russia really has no friends today, no real global alliances. This so-called realignment with China is very definitely going to be on Chinese terms, and it is not an alliance it's not an alliance yet, but it's not a, uh, a budding alliance of equals by uh, any means. And that Russia is concerned about its national security. That's what's driving a lot of its foreign policy actions. And she would argue from Russia's perspective, maybe it should be because over the last uh, 20 years, NATO has pushed right up or tried to push right up to the Russian border. And uh, that makes uh, Russia, its people and its leadership uh, nervous. And the last, she did make a comment because it's been in the news so much, Russian interference in U.S. elections. And she would argue that there's a little bit of tit for tat in that, that the United States from a Russian perspective has in the past tried to interfere in Russian elections. And I can remember uh, Hillary H uh, Clinton's comments as Secretary of State that really made Putin mad when uh, uh, he ran for office uh, uh, during that time period. Uh, Russia, like the USA, uh, Russia under Putin, like the USA under Trump, has become much more nationalistic. And she does make the point, and I think this is an interesting one, she said in the Cold War, while tensions between the governments were uh, high, nevertheless, the Russian people had a respect and an admiration for the American people. They uh, wanted their society, in many instances, to be more like American society. 
And uh, Svetlana said today that's not true, that there is rampant anti-Americanism uh, and that uh, people in Russia view the United States increasingly as a, a sort of an American first bully that uh, goes its own, own way. So what should the U.S. do at this point to try and improve relations? Well, again, it's diplomacy, that uh, if our objective long-term is to create, uh, help create, help shape, uh, to encourage a civil society and more representative government in Russia over time, the first step in doing that is re-engaging in communication to, as uh, the Obama administration said, to really make an effort at resetting relations. And the place to start is arms control. And the Trump administration has done that to some degree by reopening talks on START that uh, Pat mentioned earlier. But she also recommended that we look for multilateral opportunities to work together as well, just to get the communication going. And Russia, for example, is uh, very much behind uh, the Paris Climate Treaty. They are interested in working multilaterally on pandemic issues, and they are interested in uh, cobbling back together in a meaningful way the Iranian nuclear agreement. And Svetlana thought that uh, if we have an administration that wants to pursue those actions, there's an opportunity to re-engage with Russia as well that we shouldn't pass up. And for those reasons, uh, she thinks the Biden administration would do a much better job of uh, reducing tensions and re-engaging Russia in a positive way than a second Trump administration would. So Pat, I'll leave it to that and see if you all have any comments. Uh, Breck, I think we're going to move on, but that was a, a, a fantastic uh, recounting of that panel and some really important issues on the table there um, facing the next, whoever's uh, sitting in the seat in the, in the Oval Office on January 21st. So thanks, thanks for that. We're going to jump into uh, China now and uh, talk a little bit about the panel. Uh, we won't uh, do too much of a, a deep dive here because we've been talking about China uh, almost every global news review. And I really strongly recommend that uh, you take a look at, uh, at this panel on, uh, on our video in, in the YouTube uh, library. Uh, Dr. Susan Haynes, Professor Haynes from Lipscomb University and a member of our board of directors uh, chaired that uh, uh, terrific panel, which included John Scanapieco, who's also on our board, uh, but he's uh, a leading attorney at uh, Baker Donaldson and he has uh, the portfolio of global business uh, with, uh, with uh, Baker Donaldson. Uh, Dr. Yang Zhang from the University of Tennessee, uh, professor of political science, uh, expert in US-China relations. Bonnie Glazer, uh, she's senior advisor for Asia and director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, in Washington. She was on the panel and uh, our uh, friend of uh, the World Affairs Council, Jeremy Goldcorn, uh, editor-in-chief of uh, uh, subchina.com. It's a website. He's uh, got uh, decades of experience in China and he shared that uh, with us uh, in the program. Uh, just quickly, uh, we'll, we'll uh, talk about some of the, uh, the high points of the relationship and, and uh, we're gonna be spending more time on this in the, as, as uh, uh, global news reviews and other programs uh, come about in, in the following weeks and months, because China really is uh, a key, the key relationship of the United States uh, going forward uh, in this decade and decades to come. It's uh, just behind the United States in terms of economic power, and it is uh, increasingly an expansionist military power 
uh, as you look at the South China Sea, uh, the expansion of uh, military bases in islands that are under uh, uh, that are contested by numbers of countries. Uh, so those those are areas where we have to watch uh, Chinese military expansion, um, as well as the threat to Taiwan. Uh, China claims Taiwan. The United States recognizes it as a part of uh, one China, uh, but uh, it is a, a separate uh, government. The United States has relationships with it. And uh, Xi Jinping is increasingly uh, aggressive in rhetoric and military movements uh, regarding Taiwan. Uh, so the uh, United States policy towards Taiwan uh, could face, uh, face a test here in the not too distant future. We're gonna quickly, uh, in the interest of time, and I really uh, wanna uh, be able to give Ambassador Bowers time to talk about America's place in the world. But I wanna mention the, one of the panels, and this, this is another one that you should take a listen to. Um, we had uh, Professor Jeff Overby from uh, Belmont University, Director of Center for International Business and a member of our board. Uh, he uh, was chair for a multi-issue panel that included uh, climate, uh, Mr. Gary Garfield, uh, former CEO of Bridgestone North America, uh, who's now uh, uh, an expert on climate issues. He, he gave a presentation that you should uh, listen to. Uh, Professor Erica Owen, uh, she uh, talked about trade. She came to us um, from the uh, uh, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of uh, Pittsburgh, where she is a specialist in globalization and trade. And we also were uh, pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Richard Wyke, uh, Director of Global Attitudes Research at the Pew Research Center. And he was uh, in the, the news and the headlines that week, uh, Pew had just uh, published a new survey they did abroad of uh, international attitudes towards the United States. Uh, he briefed us on that with uh, a lot of compelling uh, charts and graphics. So take a look at, uh, at this panel on, on video. You really uh, will find uh, some, some great uh, uh, material. Uh, Dick, I'm gonna turn to you now. Um, we, uh, we have enough time for you to share your thoughts on America's place in the world. Again, we had uh, a uh, absolutely terrific panel. Uh, Dr. Tom Schwartz, uh, professor of history at Vanderbilt, talked with General John Allen, a retired uh, US Marine Corps four-star, had commanded uh, NATO forces in Afghanistan, along with uh, many other uh, really significant posts in the United States uh, military, uh, including the US Central Command responsible for the Middle East. And we also had with us Dr. Jessica Matthews, who uh, retired after leading the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace uh, for almost two decades. Uh, the two of them really are, uh, were, were a wealth of information and perspective on uh, what's going on in the world. Uh, so Ambassador Bowers, I'll hand it off to you to, to talk a little bit about that panel. Well, that a, was a terrific, terrific panel. And all these guys, uh, General Allen is indeed a four-star Marine retiree. I would give four stars to Dr. Schwartz and to Dr. Matthews as well, because they are brilliant people who have been laboring in this field for a long, long time. And Tom Schwartz uh, was an excellent moderator. He tried hard to exploit differences of opinion, but there really were very few. The two uh, panelists have got years and years of experience in foreign affairs. And basically, uh, coming with a couple of the takeaways, first off, they were both kind of 
shocked that American foreign policy is nowhere to be seen in this election campaign except for bashing China from time to time. The U.S. role in the war world, they, build, they say, has run out of steam. We used to be the leader of the free world. Dr. Walker referred to us as the leader of the free world. There's some doubt about that now, not because the world doesn't want us to lead, but because we have not decided to take up that mantle and lead. Um, we lost the Soviet embassy in the, in the uh, Soviet enemy, I'm sorry, in the years past. And that has taken some of the steam out of the desire of the United States. The transition from Cold War to no more adversary to superpower unopposed was not handled all that effectively. China is a rising power and they both tend, tend to agree that probably the most single important bilateral relationship that the United States has is with China. Uh, Biden is going to have to create a new international strategy. They talked a fair amount about, can you just uh, revise where we were? Can we pick up what, we, what we've dropped down and go back to the world as it was? Status quo ante, they both agree, was not an option. Uh, you're going to have to deal with the world the way it is, and the world has moved on. But um, relationships with other powers, particularly China, and India are vital, according to General, and we have to stop bashing our allies, get back with good relationships with NATO. Trust is something that is very fragile, and he believes, uh, General Allen, that we have violated the trust of our allies, and it's going to be a very difficult task to get back. So. Transatlantic relationships, NATO, EU are all under stress. There's technology issues coming down, artificial intelligence, Middle East challenges, global challenges. They both agreed that the number one challenge facing the United States is climate change. And we've got to get a hold of that and get the rest of the world working with us. Um, America used to lead, they said. With Trump, we no longer lead. China, pandemic, climate, lots of ways to work together, but we also need to compete. So the trade wars, they both agreed we are losing. Sanctions just don't make it in the long run. And we need to rally our de de uh, democratic allies and capitalist friends and stop, apologize for alienating them in the last four years. So we have really not been a very good ally. Um, they talked a bit, a bit about China and Taiwan, and Taiwan is a high threat. General Allen said it's really a very short slope to go from confrontation to conflict. And we have just, in the last few days, uh, the administration announced to Congress its intention to, send, to sell a major weapon system to Taiwan. The Chinese will react to that, I am certain. Um, Alan said you can't have a China policy with a policy that encumbers all of Asia, including Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. We need to engage, but not make them choose between us and China. So it shouldn't be either or. It should be in their interest to engage with us and also to engage with China. 
there was a pivot to Iran that Tom Schwartz uh, wanted to talk about. Uh, both of the speakers, the general and the professor, thought that the JP, JCPOA, the Iran deal, was a good deal and that it was absolutely absurd for the United States to pull out of it. Tom asked them, do you think if, if the Biden administration takes over and you know, Mr. Biden does win the election, would we get back into the JCPOA? And um, they thought that may not be as easy as just you think it might be. But obviously we need to do something on that front. Trust again came up, they kept talking about trust and trust uh, is, is a sine qua non for getting along in the world. And given our disparaging treatment and our slamming of our allies over the last four years, we've hurt ourselves and it's gonna take a long time for them to say, yeah, we can trust you again. On Russia, no quick reset. Uh, they basically are with you, Breck. Uh, step one, they've said, should be that we work with the Russians on those areas where we have common interests, such as arms control. And that, I think, is going to happen. Um, neither gonna, of them... Uh, we're going to run out of time here, so if you could uh, wrap it up, we'll... Uh... All right, I'll wrap it up. Um, one, qu one quick question of why Trump seems to treat Putin as he does and why he prefers, you know, people who are strong men rather than democratic allies. End of the story is, if Trump wins the election, both, both parties think we're in for very dark times in the international arena, but very dark times domestically as well. If Biden wins, he's got to major job of refixing all the stuff that's been broken and reinvigorating our diplomacy and our ability to engage in the world. It's a fascinating discussion, and I would urge all of you out there to go to the YouTube site and spend an hour or so and watch it. YouTube.com slash TNWAC for all of these programs. Dick, we do have a question for you from an anonymous attendee. Can you comment on the election result in Bolivia? I can't comment on it. Well, you know, uh, I don't know if our audience. <laughs> <laughs> Will I comment? Yes. Um, well, basically, let's, let's, in a, let's in a let every, two quick let's nutshells. Let's, let's huh? let everybody know. Let's let everybody know that you uh, are a former ambassador of Bolivia. So that's why I uh, ambassador to Bolivia. To Bolivia, yes. From the United States. Yes. I'm not a Bolivian ambassador. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Basically, when Evo Morales usurped his authority and power and tried to stay in power, to, tried to stay in power too long, people got upset. They were okay with him and his socialism, like building schools and roads and bridges and healthcare facilities and things of that sort, but they didn't want him usurping democracy. So basically, he went away. The guys that replaced him were conservative old school elites. And the people of Bolivia didn't want that back either. So they elected a man uh, who is Arce, who is representative of the party of Morales, but is not a Morales stooge. Not okay. Joe, that's it. And uh, I think uh, we're, we're due to talk about uh, Bolivia coming up in a global news review. So maybe we can uh, take that on. 
Okay, well, thank you everybody for coming. Uh, we're gonna uh, let Brett uh, do a quick uh, read through of our quiz questions so everybody uh, doesn't leave uh, wondering what, uh, what, what the answer was, Brett? Uh, well, I don't think that's the right quiz question, is it? Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, you, you, are, you are correct. Thank you. Uh, but I can remember the quiz question. In any event, I'll go ahead, Pat, if it's okay. So the question was, what, uh, what group are the Kurdish authorities having to release from detention because of inadequate facilities and lack of resources? And uh, the answer is B, as I recall, ISIS. Great. Um, that, is, that is correct. And there's, uh, that's uh, our question. And, and thank you, everybody, for being with us today. Uh, we enjoyed going through the election 2020 programs. Again, we, uh, we were fortunate in attracting a terrific uh, lineup of, of speakers. Uh, all of these programs are at your uh, beck and call at TN, excuse me, youtube.com slash TNWAC. Uh, you can also find uh, links to them on our website, tnwac.org. Again, please consider becoming a member of the World Affairs Council. Uh, that's how we, uh, we continue operations here. And, we, and you can uh, get a coffee cup, <laughs> right? A coffee mug. And we uh, also will be having a members only briefing on January 12th with Professor Thomas Schwartz. He'll be talking about the Cold War and that will be for TNWAC members only. Uh, also, you, you don't have to pay the $10 to attend tomorrow evening's fantastic uh, America's Place in the World with Ambassador Thomas Pickering and John Kornblum, and we will see you all there. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Great program. We'll see you next week. Thanks thank so much. See Good you. to see you. Well, that was uh, an interesting uh, report by The Economist, and um, it, it summarizes what's going on in uh, Xinjiang province. Um, I, I would note uh, a, a couple of things. One is the uh, surveillance system in Xinjiang is, is probably uh, the, the Chinese surveillance system on, on steroids, but uh, it is not exclusive to Xinjiang uh, province. It's uh, ubiquitous in China that uh, surveillance, facial recognition, uh, accumulating big data, uh, knowing who's where, when, uh, that's that's all going on. I had a friend who was flying into Beijing before the pandemic and walked up to a kiosk and before they could enter their boarding pass or visa information or any any data, the kiosk uh, lit up uh, with uh, their full account. Uh, it, knew, it knew who they were approaching the kiosk without any uh, interaction between the individual and, and the kiosk. So that's, that's just one example of uh, how big data is being used to keep track of, of people, not just foreigners, but uh, Chinese as well. Uh, there's a system in, in China called the social credit system. Uh, Dick, uh, Breck, I don't know if you, you've heard of this, yep. where uh, big data is used to track uh, the behavior of individuals and corporations, et cetera, uh, with the aim of building a trusted society in which people uh, adhere to uh, the rules, uh, and it, it accumulates things. If you uh, if you jaywalk, it, it will uh, start to accumulate points. If you pay your taxes late, 
there's points that go into the system. Mm -hmm. And there, there are reports that people have been denied the ability to get on a, a plane or a train because they didn't have enough social uh, credits in, in the system to, to allow them to be a trusted individual. And, and as, as punishment, they were not permitted to, uh, to do this or that, uh, that thing. Uh, but getting back to the Uyghurs, um, uh, we've, we've got a, a serious issue here of how to address that uh, given the current climate between Washington and Beijing. Uh, the, the Chinese are not going to tolerate anybody interfering in their internal affairs. So the likelihood that uh, the United States will be able to uh, change behavior in this regard is uh, what would you what would you guys say about near zero? Um, well, I don't uh, to, to change behavior is is obviously the ultimate goal, but to stand up for liberal beliefs in the world and, and a system of democracy where individuals count is something you know we need to lay down that marker. The Chinese basically, uh, it seems to me and others, I think. Uh, Stability and economic advancement are more important than an individual's freedom. And that's antithetical to what at least our forefathers and what this country has stood for since it started out. In the future, security, because people are insecure, they will gravitate to someone who promises them some security. But it's a, it's a real conflict between two different worldviews you know, individual freedom and liberty and the worth of a particular individual and, or are you part of, the, of, a, of a collective and as long as the leadership gives you security and economic advancement, you're expected to toe the line. And, and I think the key word in the uh, stability equation there is uh, total control of the Communist Party. Yes. Um, they're, they are not gonna tolerate any, any pushback to, uh, to their authority uh, anywhere in China, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, wherever. Well, you know, I mean, uh, go ahead, Brent. I was just going to say it's it's interesting though that with all the mass migrations of meaningfully sized populations throughout Western from other places throughout Western Europe uh, and uh, parts of Asia, it's interesting that issues are being raised that haven't been raised before in terms of. Uh, that are that are from a government perspective national security issues, and if there were a large separatist movement uh, to develop in uh, northwestern China, that would present some problems for the Chinese government and even human rights advocates like, uh, if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi in uh, in Myanmar. Uh, she has come out for not as bad as the Chinese, but you know certainly has been in favor of. So it's just interesting some of these issues that are raised now that are modern day issues that governments are, and again, I'm not in any way condoning the Chinese at all, but the governments are dealing with issues that uh, are, are difficult ones right now. Well, yeah, you know, I think in the case of Aung San Suu Kyi, she, um, she was elected to uh, the head of government there, even though the military is, is clearly behind what's going on in Myanmar, but she went to the UN and, and openly defended the government's actions against the Rohingya which uh, are basically ethnic cleansing, pushing them out into Bangladesh, uh, raiding villages. So there, there's been uh, open uh, genocide in, in the country and, and she's uh, stood up, she's a Nobel laureate. There was uh, a movement 
among uh, some activists to uh, to strip her of her title of uh, Nobel laureate. So uh, you're right. It, there's there's uh, being a human rights crusader, and then there's you know, uh, towing the line within your own government. So, well, one one of the things that the Chinese are trying to do is basically extinguish Uyghur culture. I mean, first off, the idea that there, you know, that there can be Muslims practicing their religion is antithetical to the control of the Communist Party, and I think there's been there part of this effort on the part of the Chinese for Uyghur women to marry a Han Chinese man so that they can eventually dilute the Uyghur culture and ethnicity. So this is, you know, I, blatant racism basically is what this is all about. Well, and there have been involuntary sterilizations of uh, Uyghur women. Yes, exactly. So the question is, what, what do you do? The, uh, the U.S. government is, uh, you know, going toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with China over so many issues, and, and, and this is uh, one of one of uh, many issues. It, it certainly is uh, at the top of the list in importance, along with uh, security and other issues. Uh, there's talk of uh, boycotting the 2022 Winter Olympic Games in, in China, um, trade sanctions. Uh, what, what's, what's the view from uh, the State Department, Ambassador? You lay down a marker, you tell them this is unacceptable and it's gonna impact adversely our relationship. It doesn't mean we stop talking to them, but uh, you have a whole panoply of kinds of things. As you mentioned, you can boycott this or part of tariff on that. I think in the, in the bully pulpits of the world, we need to start engaging again. I understand that China and Russia last week became, were elected to the UN Human Rights Council. Well, both of these countries have horrible records. But the way the UN is currently structured and the way the US is no longer leading in the UN like we did in the past, these kinds of things will happen. And China will push its development model, which is we provide you security, safety, and economic growth, and we provide a country you can be proud of. So just shut up and toe the line. Well, that's currently not the idea of a, you know, liberty as we, we understand it and the right of an individual to pursue his or her own path to the life they want to have. Not a good year for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It is not. No, it's not. All right. We need Eleanor Roosevelt the, to come back and uh, you know help us out in some of these. I, I think the footnote, uh, moving on from uh, China and the Uyghurs, is that um, uh, there's there's a marked increase in the suppression, <clears throat> excuse me, of human rights around the world as COVID-19 provides a lot of autocratic uh, regimes or uh, autocratic wannabes uh, the cover of uh, suppressing human rights. So you know we've seen even in places like India, where the uh, uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi is uh, uh, evoking aggressive Hindu nationalism, and the uh, the Muslim minority there, if you can call 300 million people a minority, um, are uh, are basically second class citizens. Likewise, in the Philippines, uh, Rodrigo Duterte is. Uh, violating every every uh, canon of uh, human dignity and murder campaigns against criminal suspects, whether they are or aren't. Uh, Brazil, Thailand, Hungary, uh, other other countries around the world are 
are taking advantage of the cover of COVID to uh, put down demonstrations. There was, uh, even in Israel, there was an effort to put down a demonstration uh, using COVID as uh, the reason to prevent people from protesting uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and his uh, being charged for various uh, crimes there. Uh, so, gentlemen, any, any comments uh, before we move on about the, the state of the world? Strong men love fear. Whenever there's fear and insecurity, somebody can come around and say, I will take care of that. I will make it good for you. And there are people, unfortunately, out there who listen, including in the United States. Well, and the one thing, uh, good point, and the one thing I would add, Pat, is we've talked many times on this program about uh, the lack of U.S. leadership, in my opinion, at least, under the Trump administration, global leadership, has, uh, has resulted in some chaotic conditions throughout the world. And I think maybe this is especially true in this area where President Trump from time to time not only says I'll do business with dictators, but he actually compliments them on uh, the kind of people they are and the policies they follow. And it, I can't imagine anything that's more encouraging of greater suppression than that kind of attitude coming from the US. Yeah. Right. Uh, the Economist had an interesting chart in their article about the Uyghurs and, and human rights around the world. Uh, the United States among those uh, countries around the world that uh, is a weaker uh, democracy uh, since the, the pandemics, uh, uh, the pandemic started back in, in the springtime. So um, that's about all you can say about that. So let's, uh, let's move on to our, uh, our third topic. Uh, we've got just a few minutes to, uh, to briefly talk uh, about the uh, presidential debates. And we have uh, here in Nashville, Tennessee coming up. Uh, let's uh, switch gears here. Uh, the presidential debate at uh, Belmont University uh, tomorrow night. It's the, would have been the third, um, third debate in the series, but uh, they skipped last week due to the uh, illness of President Trump from COVID-19, uh, he didn't want to do a uh, remote debate. So that one was scrapped. And we're left with um, the event on the 22nd, tomorrow night at uh, Belmont University. And these are the, the topics there. Uh, the Trump administration, the Trump campaign said that the third debate uh, should have been on foreign policy. The debate commission, um, the head of the debate commission said that uh, there was really no precedent for that. So these are the topics that uh, will be discussed. COVID-19, American families, race in America, climate change, national security, and, uh, and leadership. Dick, what do you think about um, not having an evening devoted uh, strictly to foreign policy, but uh, uh, including a number of other topics into uh, the debate tomorrow night? Well, the, the, the topics that you have up there, some of them can lead into that discussion on foreign policy topics. I think the fact that there's not something really focused hard on that is reality of where the US is in the world at the moment. We do not have a glaring, gee, we got fire, bring the alarms, we need to take something, care of something in the world. So we're kind of tidying up the overextension that we had in Afghanistan and Iraq mm -hmm. and other places in the world. Um, but the American public is more interested in, I think, jobs, future, COVID-19, 
schools. So we're focused fairly inwardly at the moment. And I think that'll be reflected in the, in the discussion. Although I will posit that President Trump will have a list of success stories on his foreign policy. And he will tout them out like, you know, moving our embassy to Jerusalem, getting this, the Gulf states to recognize Israel. It looks like we're on the cusp of signing an extension agreement with the Russians on the New START treaty, things of that sort. So he'll have a punch list. Oh, and don't forget, he renegotiated NAFTA. You know, I mean, some of these things are kind of, wait a minute, what is this really a success story? Anyway, that, that's my, my take on it, Pat. Brack, any thoughts on the, the debate tomorrow night? What are you, what are you looking uh, forward to hearing from one side or the other on international issues? Well, I'd love to uh, hear some discussion about their respective strategies towards uh, both candidates, their respective strategy strategies towards China, American relations with China going forward. Uh, it seems like that's one of the two or three biggest foreign policy issues that uh, uh, the presidential, whoever the next presidential administration is, will be dealing with. So I'd definitely like to hear about that. Plus, Ben, I heard there's a rumor, maybe this is false, that uh, as chairman of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, there'll be your finger on the mic mute button during the debate. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Well, uh, 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 I'm not chairman, but but thank you for, for that. Uh, yeah, we're, we, we are having a debate party. We'll mention that here in, in just a second. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we will not be uh, cutting the mic off anyone. <laughs> I, think, I think it's illustrative to see that the candidates uh, in their interactions, uh, I think people are calling the first debate a, a dumpster fire. Hopefully we won't have that tomorrow night. They are, they are turning off the mic for the first two minutes of each of the six segments in which uh, each candidate uh, provides two minutes uh, to answer a question. So uh, the, the moderator will be cutting the mic for that portion but then the rest of the debate will be uh, back and forth. Um, we, we might as well talk about the debate watch. Uh, we're, we're running uh, long on time here, but I wanna make sure that everybody uh, knows that we, uh, the World Affairs Council, in cooperation with the Tennessean uh, and uh, their project uh, on civility Tennessee, uh, David Plazas, the uh, editor of the opinion engagement section of uh, the Tennessean and USA Today, uh, he and I will be uh, kicking off a debate watch party at 7.30 p.m. Central Time tomorrow evening. We've got uh, a great uh, collection of guest speakers. Uh, panelists will talk about the mechanics of elections, campaigns. We've got some uh, experienced uh, people from senatorial and presidential campaigns, um, think tanks in Washington, and uh, some local folks here. A uh, high school student is gonna talk about the youth perspective on what's going on. So that should be a great lead up to the debate. So you can catch the pre-debate watch party at 7.30 p.m. And then we will have embedded in our Zoom meeting room, the actual candidates debate. And we will be conducting debate bingo. And we're putting together <laughs> bingo cards with all of the uh, possible terms uh, from bigly to come on man. Um, whatever you think uh, might be the appropriate uh, utterance of, of one of the other candidates. Uh, so that should be fine during the, uh, the debate. And then we'll follow up uh, with a half hour of post-debate conversation. We'll do some 
surveys of, of the audience. And uh, just uh, as, as a marker here, we have broken our uh, attendance uh, level for a Zoom room. We're, we're over uh, 120 attendees. It'll be an interesting management problem, but we will endeavor to let everybody get their voice in in the chat room or raising your hand. Or you have the mute button, Pat. You have the mute. <laughs> or or in, in other way participating. Uh, so, uh, so join us for pre-debate at 7.30, the debate, and debate bingo at uh, 8 o'clock. We'll watch the debate and then have a conversation uh, afterwards. Uh, we've got some uh, messages here in, uh, in the box. Uh, let's see, we've got questions. Uh, Sana uh, asked, uh, hair from Uyghur female prisoners uh, is making its way to our market. So that's not a question, but a comment. Austin Travis, um, says that what's the likelihood of the ICC's initial investigation of China's actions against the Uyghurs moving forward for, to a full trial? And if that did happen, what would be the impact? Uh, would the US support that even though we aren't an ICC member? Some general questions for the Gambia case against China and the ICJ as well. Uh, Dick, I don't know, and, and Austin, you, you probably know the answer. Uh, I suspect China is not a party to the ICC. Um, We'd have to do a. I quick suspect the same. I you know, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect they are also not. Yeah, Austin is correct that the United States is not a signatory to the ICC. In fact, the uh, State Department has uh, sanctioned um, some figures from the uh, the court over a case involving Israel, um, and uh, there's there's been some pushback on that. Uh, so we'll have to uh, take a look at that. But uh, I, I think the answer would be that China would uh, resist any um, interference from anybody, uh, the, the UN or a sovereign country, um, as far as interference in its internal affairs. I agree. Now, now whether the ICC uh, has any legitimacy in China, we'll, uh, we'll have to check that out. But I think that's, uh, that's the answer. Um, Michelle Chan asks uh, or comments, the U.S. Um, and Saudi Arabia in five-year wars against Yemen creates the biggest humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Million children uh, will be starved to death, a big violation of human rights. Yes, I, I think um, uh, human rights organizations are, are standing up against uh, the, uh, the campaign in uh, Yemen between uh, the Houthis, uh, the Yemeni government, uh, the Saudi military, the UAE, UAE was involved in a larger way, has pulled back some, but that's, uh, Yemen was in terrible trouble to begin with in terms of its economic development. There's a place where water resources um, are, are terribly taxed. Uh, the war has not uh, contributed in any good way to resolving that problem. So uh, yes, um, uh, Michelle, you're correct that uh, the humanitarian situation in Yemen begs for an intervention and a resolution of, of the battle there. Unfortunately, it's it's a it's a symbol of the uh, the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Saudi Arabia claims uh, that Iran is involved in arming the Houthis. Uh, there's been ample evidence of that. Uh, Iran claims that uh, Saudi Arabia has no business there. So um, it, it's probably going to involve a larger resolution of differences between 
Tehran and Riyadh over uh, their competition before the Yemeni uh, situation is resolved. Dick? No, I was just going to say, I think it reflects the fact that we, you know, we have been supporting the Saudis in this effort from the get-go in terms of the, the supplying munitions and equipment and various kinds of things. And basically, it has not become a political issue in the United States, except yep. for particular uh, groups who might want to try to rally pro or con. But Congress hasn't done anything about this. Uh, it's not in people talking about, gee, we got to take care of this kind of thing. So it reflects the isolationism, if you will, or the inward focus of uh, the American public. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, move along here. We got to get to uh, Breck's question. Uh, but first, I want to mention uh, that if you're not already aware of our election 2020 series, please take a look at the uh, archives that we have of these panels. Uh, we really can't portray in this slide the quantity and quality of speakers that uh, came together uh, for these programs, um, ambassadors, uh, specialists from think tanks, uh, scholars, military people uh, across the board. Uh, some top tier individuals uh, got involved in this uh, election 2020 series. And all of these are in the archives at the youtube.com slash TNWAC. So check them out. We still have the election watch party, uh, the debate watch party and part two of America's place in the world. That will be uh, a week from tomorrow. Ambassador Tom Pickering and Ambassador John Kornblum uh, moderated by Professor Tom Schwartz and then uh, several weeks uh, after the election, we'll have a, a special program called uh, What's Next? So that's it. We're going to uh, jump to our question. Uh, gentlemen, any other comments before we work our way out? No, thank you. Uh, okay, well, we'll get, uh, we'll get on the, the question. Breck, over to you. All right, the question was again, which country is uh, going to have youthful demonstrations wrapped around a significant anniversary on October the 25th? And the answer is D, Iraq. Great. Okay, just uh, one, one last uh, note that uh, we are very pleased to uh, mark our uh, 100th podcast and 60th webinar. So uh, we look forward to bringing you more programs uh, in, the, in the Global Tennessee podcast series and in our video archive at youtube.com slash TNWAC. And of course, you can go to our website and uh, look, uh, scroll down and see what's coming up on the calendar and uh, uh, sign up for our programs uh, still to come. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so much. Happy uh, 100th. Uh, it, Thank you. It looks, it looks good on all of us. <laughs> Yeah, you surprised me with that picture you dug up there. About, so I, I'm going to have to find one of you in your in your submarine outfit there. Okay, something. well, good good luck with that. <laughs> have a good week, day. gentlemen. Thanks, good to see you all. Everybody, be safe. Thanks for coming. <laughs>